Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. The White House is telling Americans that skyrocketing gas prices are a global challenge. This as President Biden's team and Democrat lawmakers are expected to bring back price controls. What do economists say? Mexico's president is boycotting the U.S.-hosted Summit of the Americas. Find out why he is declining to attend. Michigan Supreme Court has denied appeals by three GOP gubernatorial candidates. They asked to re-enter the race after being disqualified for signature fraud. And we get some insight into the elections in Arizona. A state representative lays out some potential challenges to having fair elections there, and he discusses an endorsement of a candidate for U.S. Senate. With gas prices soaring, the White House says it's important for Americans to understand that it's a global challenge. It also said the cost of fuel is even higher in countries like Canada and Germany. And today's Jessica Beatty has more. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre Monday said people around the world are feeling pain at the pump, just like Americans. This is a global challenge. Uh, this is something that everyone is feeling uh, across the globe. And But we understand that prices, these gas prices, uh, including food prices in particular, those two things, this is hurting families, especially as they uh, sit around their kitchen table. The price for a gallon of regular gas has more than doubled since President Biden took office, according to AAA. As of Tuesday, the national average jumped to $4.91 per gallon. That's up 29 cents from a week ago and up a whopping $1.86 from a year ago. Nine states are above five bucks a gallon. In California, it's over $6. The press secretary pointed to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which is partly responsible for rising prices. You look, you know, if you look at um, uh, what happened when Putin started amassing troops on the border with Russia, the price of gas has increased by $1.51. The latest Gallup poll says 85% of Americans see the U.S. economy as in either fair or poor shape. All this putting pressure on the Biden administration to do something. Biden's team and Democrat lawmakers are expected to bring back price controls. Last month, House Democrats passed the Consumer Fuel Price Gouging Prevention Act. It would allow the president to declare an energy emergency for up to 30 days with the option to extend it. Energy policy expert Jack Spencer from the Conservative Heritage Foundation says this would basically allow politicians to pick a price they think is right and then fine companies for charging more. Many economists, both Democrat and Republican, oppose price controls as a way to fight inflation, saying it would repeat the mistakes that led to gas lines in the 1970s. Former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers, who served under Obama and Clinton, told Bloomberg the bill is, quote, dangerous nonsense. He said it disregards the real causes of inflation, which he said have to do with inflated demand created by excessive stimulus measures. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Low-income families will now have easier access to baby formula amid a nationwide shortage. The USDA announced it's offering waivers so families with federal WIC benefits can access formula that's not normally available to them. The products have been imported from other countries as part of Operation Fly Formula. That's a program the Biden administration launched last month in the wake of a massive recall of Abbott baby formula in February. About half of the infant formula in the U.S. is purchased by those using federal WIC benefits. This allows them to obtain formula for free, but it comes with restrictions on type, size, and brand. 
About 1.2 million infants are part of the program. Mexico's president is boycotting the U.S.-hosted Summit of the Americas. He says he will not attend since Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua are being excluded by the U.S. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on that decision. Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador announced on Monday he will not go to the summit because not all countries of the Americas are invited. López Obrador says he will send Mexico's foreign minister instead. The Mexican president says he still plans to meet with President Joe Biden in July to talk about immigration and more U.S. investment in Central America. Other leaders from Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador are also declining to attend. State Department spokesperson Ned Price says the U.S. understands the Mexican president's position. We, again, recognize and respect uh, the position of our allies in supporting and support of inclusive dialogue. Price defended Washington's decision to exclude Cuba, Venezuela and Nicaragua from the meeting, saying as the convener of the summit, the United States has broad discretion over who is invited to participate. One of uh, the key elements of this summit is democratic governance. Uh, and these three countries are uh, not exemplars, to put it mildly, uh, of democratic governance. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says despite Obrador's decision, an extensive conversation can still be had with other heads of state at the summit. The president has to stick by his uh, principle. He believes that he needs to stick by his principles and not invite dictators. But many experts and critics say the event could turn into an embarrassment for President Biden, with no meaningful progress if only a fraction of Latin American countries attend. If you're going to host a summit, uh, you need to get your ducks in order, not just days, but weeks and months in advance. And uh, the White House doesn't seem to have been able to muster that level of necessary attention. One expert says it's a missed opportunity for the U.S. So one option would have been to invite all of these leaders and actually have a discussion about the problems of democracy. Biden has struggled to assert U.S. leadership in the region where mistrust of the U.S. runs deep. China has made major inroads in Latin America over the past two decades, as U.S. foreign policy has been focusing on wars in the Middle East and now Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Former White House National Security Director for South America, Benjamin Gadon, says it's critical the U.S. shows it's serious about investing in the region. Latin America right now is in desperate, urgent need of international support. It has enormous potential to help fortify supply chains, to provide copper and lithium and other critical minerals for green technologies. It has opportunities for friendshoring to put uh, U.S. investment instead of in distant uh, totalitarian states in local democratic states. It has opportunities for renewable energy. It's the first time the summit will be held in the U.S. since 1994, when former President Bill Clinton convened the first meeting in Miami, Florida. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. A law group discovered that New Jersey voter registration records contain more than 8,200 duplicates. That's according to a report by the Public Interest Legal Foundation. The discovery means that thousands of voters in New Jersey are able to potentially vote more than once in an election. The Virginia-based group alerted the New Jersey Secretary of State to the problem. The group says it was able to access the information after a federal lawsuit. Other registration problems include nearly 2,400 individuals listed as active voters whose birthdays make them more than 100 years old. The group also found thousands of registrations with inaccurate dates of birth, fictitious registration dates, and even dates of birth from centuries ago or years into the future. Earlier this year, the group reported similar problems in the voter rolls of Arizona and North Carolina.
The Michigan Supreme Court on Friday denied appeals filed by three Republican gubernatorial candidates. They're accused of forging signatures on their nominating petitions. Here's more. The Michigan Supreme Court declined to hear the appeals of three Republican gubernatorial candidates. They allegedly submitted petitions that contained fraudulent signatures. The three are former Detroit Police Chief James Craig, Oakland County Businessman Perry Johnson, and Grand Haven Financial Advisor Michael Markey. Their names will be wiped off the party's primary ballot on August 2nd. A May report by Michigan's Bureau of Elections found 68,000 signatures on petitions for 10 candidates. Five of them were later disqualified from running. The Bureau's director, Jonathan Brader, said staff members visually inspected those signatures. They compared 7,000 of the 68,000 alleged forgeries to actual signatures in the qualified voter file. The Bureau's report found sets of sheets where the two or three distinct handwriting styles appeared on multiple sheets. In response, the accused candidates contended that officials failed to compare every signature. Craig said in a statement that the voters should be deciding who their candidates are, not an unelected board of government bureaucrats. Candidates for governor must collect at least 15,000 voter signatures to run in the primary. According to Michigan Bureau of Elections, Johnson submitted close to 14,000 valid signatures. Craig had over 10,000 valid signatures, while Brown, Markey, and Brandenburg fell far short. Also barred from the race are businesswoman Donna Brandenburg and Michigan State Police Chief Richard Brown. Brown withdrew after initially learning of his disqualification, while the others brought their cases to the Supreme Court. Brandenburg has not yet received a ruling. This court decision is reshuffling Michigan's GOP primary field. A previous poll showed Craig with a commanding lead at 23 percent. But according to a more recent poll, real estate agent Ryan Kelly is leading the new field with 19 percent, followed by Kevin Rink with 15 percent. Now we turn to elections in Arizona. We hear from a state representative who shares his perspectives on early voting and candidate endorsements. Please welcome Arizona State Representative Mark Fincham. Thank you for joining us, Representative Fincham. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And how would you like to be addressed today? Please call me Mark. Okay, Mark. Well, let's start off with Arizona Republicans. They have pushed legal means to curb early voting in the state of Arizona, but Arizona Secretary of State Katie Hobbs says that this would create chaos in those counties that would need to create more places to vote in order to handle this. What's your reaction to this? Uh, I think that's an excuse, quite frankly. Uh, I'm, there are two kinds of people in this world. There are the, the, the kind that say, we can't, and then there are the kind who say, how do we? I'm in the how do we camp, and I think that she is in the we can't camp. Um, now, the, the issue that we've got is that early voting is a contributor to election. But the problem we have is when people can vote early, they also, they, meaning government officials and political types, are able to count the votes early. And that means that, well, you maybe you have a, uh, your thumb on the scale of election justice, and you could find out who is leading and make up the votes. I mean, they do that in Pennsylvania. In fact, they've, I think they've done that in, in just about every state. Um, they, meaning the, the folks who would like to control elections and make them selections as opposed to elections of the people. And why um, are you running for Arizona Secretary of State? Uh, that's one of the reasons I'm running for Secretary of State. But moreover, in the, the legal matter, um, there is a serious question as to whether or not voting early is even constitutional. It says that we shall meet on a day, not a week, not a month, 
on a day. So um, we're addressing that in the courts, and I think that uh, ultimately we will prevail. Um, now, one of the reasons that I'm running for Secretary of State is because we have pervasive irregularities. Everything from ballot harvesting to multiple voters voting multiple times. Um, we've got over 207,000 ballots, and that's a conservative number, by the way. Over 207,000 ballots that they, they meaning Maricopa County, cannot demonstrate a chain of custody for. That means that we have no idea where they came from. We have no idea that they were legitimately in the system. So we've got some major problems in Arizona, and that's what I aim to fix. And what do you make of former President Donald Trump's endorsement of Blake Masters in the GOP primary for U.S. Senate, and as opposed to Brnovich, who did not bring any charges for alleged voter fraud in the state? Well, I, I think that uh, that may be, it may be premature to say that he hasn't brought any, um, because he has brought some indictments down in Yuma. Um, I think it's a larger question of RICO investigations, racketeering investigations, are very complicated and they take a long time. And I understand that the polity is is grown impatient. I've grown impatient, but I also come from a law enforcement background. Um, 21 years as a DPS officer in West Michigan. Um, I understand that racketeering cases, uh, as you w work your way up the food chain of the bad guys, it takes a while. And I think that we are going to see a significant number of indictments eventually. Um, the folks at True the Vote are probably going to drop a 10 megaton bomb sometime in July and demonstrate just how pervasive the fraud is. So with that, I, I, I don't understand the president's selections, um, but it's not my job to, to question him on that. He, it, we all have a personal franchise to make endorsements. I've made some endorsements that some of my my uh, constituents might look at me and say, what are you doing? Well, I've talked to these people. I trust them. Um, so apparently there's enough there for the president to make a decision on who he trusts with perhaps one of the most powerful seats in the state of Arizona. Arizona State Representative Mark Fincham, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Do you remember the couple who wielded guns at Black Lives Matter protesters outside their homes? Well, one of them is Mark McCloskey, who is now a candidate for U.S. Senate. He's had his law license restricted as a result of the incident in 2020. The Supreme Court decided not to hear his appeal to get his license back. He argued in his petition to the high court that he shouldn't be punished for exercising his constitutional right of self-defense. He and his wife gained folk hero status among conservatives as a result of the encounter. The McCloskeys pleaded guilty to misdemeanor charges and agreed to pay fines. They were pardoned by Missouri Governor Mike Parson, but were sanctioned by the Missouri Bar. McCloskey says he was hoping the Supreme Court would find significance in the case. Senate nominee John Fetterman's wife says he may be away from the campaign trail until July as he recovers from a stroke. Fetterman won Pennsylvania's Democratic primary easily in May, despite being in the hospital on Election Day. On Monday, Giselle Fetterman also pushed back on suggestions the family hadn't been fully transparent about the extent of her husband's heart condition after the stroke. She initially described his stroke as a hiccup. The severity of his illness was not revealed until 17 days later. His cardiologist said Friday that Fetterman suffers from both an irregular heartbeat and cardiomyopathy, a disease that makes it difficult for the heart to pump blood to the rest of the body. Fetterman also did not previously disclose his heart condition. 
In the general election, he will face Republican nominee Mamet Oz in one of the nation's most closely watched Senate contests. Fetterman is currently Pennsylvania's lieutenant governor. A California judge, federal judge has sentenced the Mexican man involved in the 2015 shooting death of a woman on a San Francisco pier. Jose Garcia Zarate was acquitted of homicide charges by a San Francisco jury in 2017, but faced firearms charges in federal court. The federal judge sentenced him to the seven years that he has already spent in jail. The sentencing brings to a close a case that ignited a national firestorm over immigration, crime, and sanctuary cities. Here's the backstory. Garcia Zarate was in the U.S. illegally when 32-year-old Kate Steinle was fatally shot along a crowded pier while walking with her father and a family friend. He admitted firing the gun, but said he found it under a bench and didn't know what it was because it was wrapped in a t-shirt. He said the gun fired accidentally. Officials said the bullet ricocheted off the ground and hit Steinle. Zarate had already been deported five times before the tragedy occurred. New York City police were searching today for a man who pushed a woman onto the tracks at a Bronx train station on Sunday. It's the latest in a series of violent crimes on one of the world's largest transit systems. New York City police posted a video of the incident on Twitter. It shows a man walking up behind a woman, wrapping his arms around her and hurling her over the platform. She landed on the southbound tracks at the Westchester and Jackson train station. The woman was taken to the hospital where she was in stable condition. Local media reported that bystanders helped the woman off the tracks before a train arrived. She suffered a broken collarbone and cuts. There's a $3,500 reward for information leading to the arrest of the assailant. He was wearing a white sleeveless t-shirt, shorts, and a baseball cap and carrying a red backpack. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, the sugar industry is warning that gas shortages could affect production. It's the latest industry to be affected by the war in Ukraine. And inflation is making chicken imports scarce in Singapore and is affecting a popular street food dish. Find out how street food sellers are dealing with the shortage right here on NTD News. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says there are credible reports that Russia is pilfering grain exports from Ukraine to sell for profit. Blinken said the alleged theft was part of broader Russian actions during the war. Russian forces have captured some of Ukraine's most productive farmland. They planted explosives uh, throughout the fields. Uh, they've destroyed uh, vital agricultural infrastructure. There are credible reports, uh, including, uh, as we saw in one of our leading newspapers today, that Russia is pilfering Ukraine's grain exporters, exports excuse me, to sell for its own profit. Blinken also says Russia is hoarding its own food exports. He says President Putin is using it as a bargaining chip to get countries to end sanctions. Blinken calls it blackmail. He says Putin is using propaganda to deflect or distort responsibility. Blinken may have been referring to a New York Times story. It said Washington last month warned 14 countries that Russia was trying to ship stolen Ukraine grain to buyers overseas. 
On Monday, Russia's U.N. ambassador stormed out of a U.N. Security Council meeting. At the time, the European Council president had been accusing Moscow of fueling a global food crisis with its invasion of Ukraine. A U.S. court has authorized the seizure of two luxury planes owned by Russian billionaire and Chelsea soccer club owner Roman Abramovich. The billionaire made headlines after putting Chelsea up for sale in March following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The sale was complicated by U.K. sanctions on Abramovich and was completed just last month. On Monday, a federal judge in Manhattan issued warrants for his planes on the grounds that he violated U.S. export controls imposed after the Russian invasion. The U.S.-made planes were flown to Moscow three times in March without the license required by U.S. export restrictions. But the U.S. government's likelihood of gaining control of the nearly $400 million aircraft remains uncertain. A Department of Justice official says the planes aren't yet in U.S. custody and that the warrants will likely dissuade companies from helping to move the aircraft. U.S. authorities are trying to pressure business leaders close to Russian President Vladimir Putin to halt what Moscow calls its special military operation in Ukraine. Abramovich, who helped mediate talks between Moscow and Kiev during the early days of the war, has also been sanctioned by the EU, but not the United States. The U.S. Commerce Department may fine Abramovich nearly $1 million for the unlicensed flights, among other penalties. A spokesperson for Abramovich did not immediately respond to requests for comment. He is denied having close ties to Putin. The U.S. Army formed a new 11th Airborne Division in Alaska this week. The division has a distinguished history of valor during World War II. The 11th Airborne Division fought in the Pacific years ago. It once rescued more than 2,000 civilians from a Japanese internment camp based in the Philippines. The old division was deactivated in the 1960s. Soldiers of the new division are dubbed the Arctic Angels. The rebranded unit aims to prepare the U.S. military for future cold weather conflicts as Russia and China increase their presence in the Arctic. Army Chief of Staff General James McConville attended the activation ceremony in Fairbanks. He was joined by Alaska Senator Dan Sullivan, who pointed to the importance of the Arctic. He said the U.S. still falls behind Russia and China in terms of power in the region. General McConville called the event historical. He hopes the new 11th Airborne Division will give U.S. Army an edge in regaining Arctic dominance. Worries are rising in the sugar industry that gas shortages could affect global production. The war in Ukraine and supply chain issues have already led to worries about a global food crisis in other sectors. The sugar industry is the latest sector to be hit by the war in Ukraine. Worries are rising that gas shortages may soon impact global production. Stefan Streng is the head of the Association of Southern German Sugar Beet Growers. So during the last three years, um, the demand of sugar is higher than the production. So we are at actual in a, in a situation that there is not a lot of stocks um, in the world. So when we are losing um, a part of the worldwide um, sugar harvest, beet harvest and the sugar production, it means that we will have a big supply problem. And this uh, it will be a supply problem for the whole world. Sugar beets make up 32% of the world's sugar supply. The manufacturing process uses a relatively large amount of energy for a short period of time. And Strang says most of that energy comes from coal, oil or gas. 
And there are many factories that are 100% depending on gas delivery. So they will not be able to start the campaign. And this means there is no sugar production at all. This means no uh, beet uh, cutting, no processing. So a, a big disaster for the beet growers and for the sugar industry. According to the International Confederation of European Beet Growers, the European Union is the third largest sugar producer in the world. Singapore imports a lot of its chicken from its neighbor Malaysia, over 30%. A Malaysian ban on chicken exports is making life difficult for some food vendors in Singapore. Here's that story. A ban on exports of all chicken in Malaysia is threatening a dish central to the identity of its neighbor Singapore. Steamed rice, a side of greens, and some poached chicken make chicken rice, sold all over the city for cheap at its famous hawker stalls. Daniel Tan owns several stalls across the island nation. He says fresh meat from over the border is optimal for poached chicken, with frozen meat from further abroad a poor substitute. But without a clear end to the ban in sight, Tan is preparing for the worst as customers react to the change. The ban would mean we are no longer able to sell. It's like McDonald's with no burgers, or maybe Coca-Cola with a Coke. We still will operate, but I'm expecting a strong key in sales. Um, I'll be happy if I have half the volume. Basically, the strategy is not to make any money, it's how much we're going to lose. If I have to lose 126 k a month, we'll be bankrupt by the first month. Malaysia announced the chicken export ban just last week, citing soaring costs to raise the birds, in particular chicken feed. That's typically made up of grain and soybean, which Malaysia has to itself import. But Russia's invasion of Ukraine and uncertain weather patterns have created a global shortage. Chicken farmer Siaizol Zulkafli says he was able to harvest as many as seven times a year, with 45,000 birds harvested per cycle. This year, he only expects five. There's a shed world changes due to slow growth of chicken. The slow growth of chicken is affected by feed quality as well. This feed quality is, is a global issue where the, the rising cost of feed material from abroad has forced some feed millers to adjust their feed level unlike what we had previously back before MCO. Uh, so that's the difference between now and two years back. Though the export ban may be temporary, Siaizo says it's creating a long-term headache. The farmer worries countries that consistently imported their poultry, like Singapore, could easily find another vendor. And if he has to stomach more losses in the future, he says he's better off becoming a rideshare driver instead. Still to come, it's been 33 years since the Tiananmen Square massacre, and the Chinese regime is still working hard to censor any mention of the tragedy, but internet users are finding different ways to remember the day. And a city in Europe welcomes animals as diplomatic gifts. That's after years of tensions between the city, China and Taiwan. We'll have all that and more for you after the short break. It's been 33 years since the Chinese Communist Party deployed its army and slaughtered students protesting for a better China. This year, the slogan, It's My Duty, and a bike have become icons used to commemorate the event. Let's take a look. Saturday marked a busy day for Chinese internet censors, the 33rd anniversary of the Tiananmen Massacre. 
On the night of June 4, 1989, Chinese troops opened fire to end the student-led anti-corruption and democracy protests. It happened in and around Tiananmen Square, the center of Beijing. China has never provided a full death toll for the event, but rights groups and witnesses say the figures could run into the thousands. On its anniversary this past Saturday, anything referencing the incident appeared to get blocked on Chinese social media. Any post giving the slightest hint or mention of the day also got instantly deleted. Days before the anniversary, many platforms in China blocked users from changing their usernames and profile pictures. And on the eve of the anniversary, reports say many users still tried to avoid authorities' censorship to commemorate the day. Some started sharing the slogan, It's My Duty, online. Why? That phrase came from an anonymous student who participated in the protests 33 years ago. That's how he responded to being asked why he planned to march at Tiananmen Square. He was riding a bike at the time. A BBC documentary captured the dialogue. Now, some users on Chinese social media platform Weibo have started sharing those words alongside bicycle icons. One post garnered over 100 bike icons and a number of reposts, but Beijing's censorship organ seemed to react quickly. Posts related to the slogan, It's My Duty, started vanishing from social media, even those including just the word duty. That was on the eve of the anniversary. Beijing's censorship machine acted quickly, and almost all related online posts disappeared by dawn. Liu Lipeng worked as a Weibo censor in China, he said in previous years, hundreds or thousands of keywords were usually censored during the June 4th anniversary, and noted that there were as many as hundreds of thousands of keyword combinations on the social media blacklist. Pandas or pangolins, cozying up to Beijing or keeping ties with Taiwan. A city in Europe chooses its animal of choice as a diplomatic gift after years of three-way tensions. Here's more. This is a pangolin, one of the world's most trafficked mammals. A zoo in Prague got a pair of them from Taiwan after a political falling out with China. Prague was originally hoping to get pandas after the Czech capital became a sister city to Beijing in 2016. But things took a turn after the new mayor took office. The new mayor, Zdenek Rib, wanted to remove a clause from the agreement that upholds the One China principle. Under it, countries or cities must recognize Beijing's claim that Taiwan is part of China. Taiwan split from mainland China after a civil war in 1949. Mock raids and mechanized maneuvers all express the heroic determination of Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek to fight on whatever the future may hold. But Beijing still sees Taiwan as part of its territory, and it has been pledging to take control of the island by force. That's despite Taiwan being a self-ruled democracy. Having never been ruled by the Chinese Communist regime and having its own military and president. Most countries, including the U.S., recognize the One China policy. Washington keeps diplomatic ties with China, but a law requires it to provide Taiwan with the means to defend itself. After Beijing refused to remove the One China Clause, Prague canceled its sister city agreement with Beijing. It later became a sister city to Taipei, the capital of Taiwan. 
So instead of pandas, Prague welcomed a pair of pangolins from Taiwan. For us, they are ambassadors of the wild nature, ambassadors of the pangolins that are still living in the wilderness. The Czech government still upholds the One China policy, but Prague says it wants to focus on cultural cooperation, not politics. And if you have any news, tips, or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, Apple is unveiling its latest iPhone operating system and its newest chip for MacBooks. The new system will allow users to edit iMessages. And a California man is determined to kayak to alone to Hawaii. That means over two months of pedaling in the open sea. He previously made a similar trip, but he had a team rowing with him. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. Apple is announcing a software update to its iPhones and a new generation of MacBook Air powered with its latest M2 chip. This was at its second major annual event this year, the Worldwide Developers Conference on Monday. Let's take a look. Apple unveiled its latest operating system for iPhones, iOS 16, on Monday. It will allow users to edit or unsend iMessages and use their iPhone camera as a webcam for their computers along with other changes. And the next release, iOS 16, offers new intelligence, sharing, and communication features that are going to enhance so much of what you do with your iPhone. In iOS 16, we're bringing the biggest update ever to the lock screen, completely reimagining how it looks and works for you. The tech giant is also introducing a new payment system called Apple Pay Later. It lets users split the cost of an Apple Pay purchase into four equal payments spread over six weeks. There will be zero interest and no additional fees. Bob O'Donnell, president of Technalysis Research, is positive about the latest system update. Well, you know, I thought it was great. I mean, I think what we saw Apple doing is doing the real meat and potatoes upgrades that people are looking for. Refinements to iOS, refinements to Mac OS, uh, refinements to the iPad OS, um, things that people have been asking for, little things that, you know, grabbed a lot of attention. And also at the conference, Apple announced its new MacBook Air, redesigned around a new M2 silicon processor. The company says it will be 35% faster than its predecessor, the M1 chip, and come with 24 gigabytes of unified memory. So that's the all-new, amazingly portable and powerful MacBook Air. It's thinner, lighter, and faster, with a durable unibody design, bigger display, better camera, all-day battery life, and four beautiful finishes. It's everything you could want in a new MacBook Air. The new MacBook Air with the M2 chip will start at $1,199 and come in gray, gold, silver, and blue. It weighs 2.7 pounds and has a 13.6-inch liquid retina display. A MacBook Pro with the M2 chip starts at $1,299. Both laptops will be available next month. Clear out those drawers of mystery cables because the European Union is officially adopting a common charger. USB-C. Apple is required to adapt its products by late 2024 and is reportedly already testing the port in iPhones. On Monday, Apple unveiled iOS 16, which will also bring sweeping changes to devices. NASA on Monday returned its new moon rocket to the launch pad for a critical dress rehearsal. It's a countdown test. 
That's the last major milestone. Then the 30-story Space Launch System rocket is ready to launch. Problems during a previous test prevented NASA from filling the rocket's fuel tanks. Now, NASA may send the Orion spacecraft on a test flight around the moon later this year. It's one thing to fly to Hawaii, but what about another mode of transportation? One man is about to go there by kayak alone. NTD's David Lamb spoke to a man that's made that daunting journey his mission. See if you can guess how many days he'll be at sea. In the coming weeks or even days, one man in the Bay Area plans to embark on a journey that he's been waiting for for four years. Now, ever since a test run last summer, he's been preparing ever since. He says this time, all he needs is good weather. Cyril Deramo is French-born and currently lives in the Bay Area. He's made it his mission to solo kayak from San Francisco to Honolulu. Uh, here's what I need to do. I need three days with no wind so I can go off the coast as far as possible. In the summer of 2021, he made his first attempt. He said it was a learning experience to test the waters. Maybe, you know, if I do 30 miles per day, that's 90 miles off the coast. And then I'm far enough so that the wind will not bring me back, okay? But the wind started to pick up and more and more and more. Deramo said it got to the point where it got dangerous for his life. So he and his on-land team called in for a rescue back to shore. But this was surely not the end of his journey. Obviously, it's a struggle. For 70 days, it's going to be hard, hard, hard. But when you make it, you pass your own batteries, and then you're so proud of yourself. You, you Like, wow, it's fantastic. That's why I want to do it again. To give a feeling of how far Hawaii is, flights from San Francisco to both Honolulu and New York take about the same amount of time. What is a five and a half hour flight time will take him over two months of paddling. He previously earned the Guinness World Record from Monterey to Hawaii, but with a team of four on a rowing boat. They finished in 39 days. But for solo kayaking, he said there were only six other people that have done it before. Deramo started kayaking at the age of 32. It's the things he sees while out at sea that makes it worth it. There's something about being in the middle of the ocean where you don't see land for two months, where you're connected with nature. Like, imagine if you have to go away for two months, there's no email, there's no internet, there's no phone, there's nothing, just you in the moment. Deramo's game plan is to kayak 30 miles by day and an additional 10 miles by night as the waves push him while he sleeps. So I have to mix the training. So for me, I do yoga, I run, I do biking, kayaking. I mix all the training. Maybe one day I will do two hours of yoga in the morning, two hours of running in the afternoon. Out in the ocean, he may be paddling for 10 to 12 hours a day. So it's really light and it's like this. So right and left, right and left. Deramo has on-land support to communicate with each day for statistics and weather stats. I do this adventure because that's what that's my passion to be on the water and I follow my dreams. And not everybody has to follow like me and but if you want to climb a mountain, if you want to live overseas, you want to le learn a language, you have to do it because the energy that you have when you follow your passion makes you do everything. He says he doesn't mind the struggle as his eyes are set on reaching paradise at the end of the journey. Aloha! <laughs> David Lamb, NTD News, California.
Next comes an underwater adventure to Colombia where three centuries-old shipwrecks were discovered. One of them was loaded with tons of gold coins and treasures. One of the long-sunken ships was the San Jose Galleon. It sank in 1708 near the Caribbean port of Cartagena. Some historians believe its cargo of treasure might be worth billions of dollars today. New images of the shipwreck reveal gold coins, cannons, and other items, including vases and pottery. Colombian officials said two other historic shipwrecks were found nearby during underwater monitoring of the San Jose Galleon. One of them dates back to the Spanish colonial period. The other is believed to be a Spanish ship from Colombia's War of Independence about 200 years ago. Authorities are working to raise the wreck from the seabed. The Colombian president said the wrecks will be fully preserved and protected until extraction is completed. The ship's contents and riches will be sent to museums and displayed to the world. And still to come, a rare Stradivari violin is headed to auction at Christie's. The instrument was made all the way back in 1679 by the renowned Italian craftsman. And Michael Phelps, the most decorated Olympian ever, leads the Team USA Hall of Fame inductions for 2022. Alpine skier Lindsey Vaughn is also among the 12 inductees. Stay tuned for more after this short break. A rare 1679 violin made by renowned Italian craftsman Antonio Stradivari is headed for auction next month where it could fetch up to $11 million. Christie's Auction House says the Hellier Stradivarius is the finest inlaid violin ever made by Stradivari and one of the finest Stradivarius instruments in existence. Engraved with ivory diamonds and finished with a golden varnish, the violin has an estimated value of between 7 and 12 million dollars. Florian Leonhard is a violin expert and Christie's consultant. So the beauty of this violin is these 500 diamond-shaped uh, um, pieces of ivory that were inlaid around the purfling. Um, it's a lot of work to cut them and to, to carefully place them and also this very beautifully inlaid uh, black um, ornamentation all the way around the violin, around the scroll, everywhere. Everything's absolutely beautifully carved and yet not like a machine, it just shows character and the hand of the great master. Stradivari kept the instrument for 55 years, selling it in 1734 for 40 pounds to Samuel Hellier of England. I expect a lot of interest for such an instrument because it's so rare that it comes out of a museum. When can you touch a violin like this and own it? It's incredible. Stradivari's violins are known for their exquisite craftsmanship and superior sound quality. They currently cost between $8 million and $20 million, according to Leonhard. Christie said in a statement that of the roughly 1,100 instruments that Stradivari made over the course of his career, only around a dozen are embellished with decoration, and this specimen is regarded by the Smithsonian curators as the best preserved extant example. The Hellier Stradivarius violin goes up for auction in the exceptional sale at Christie's in London on July 7th.
The minimum competition age for senior figure skating competition is gradually going to change from 15 to 17. The International Skating Union made the decision after a debate at their Congress today. Okay, so please close the vote. The proposal was passed by 100 votes to 16, well clear of the two-thirds majority required. The decision came after the Beijing Winter Olympics in February. Russian figure skater Kamila Valieva tested positive for a banned substance. She was 15 at the time. Her case prompted questions about the minimum age and if it needed to be raised to protect minors. The minimum age for skaters will be 16 for the 2023-24 season and increased to 17 from the 2024-25 season onwards. This will be in time for the 2026 Winter Olympics in Italy. Valieva, who is now 16, failed a doping test at the Russian National Championships last December. The result was only revealed on February 8th, a day after she had helped the Russian Olympic Committee win the team event at the Beijing Games. Michael Phelps, the most decorated Olympian of all time and alpine skiing great Lindsey Vonn, headlined the United States Olympic and Paralympic Hall of Fame Class of 2022 that was announced on Monday. Among the 12 individuals being inducted are swimmer Natalie Koglin, soccer player Mia Hamm, figure skater Michelle Kwan, and late basketball coach Pat Summit, and former tennis great Billie Jean King, who will go in as a special contributor. Phelps is the only male swimmer to compete on five Olympic teams and owns a record 28 Olympic medals, including 23 golds. Vaughn has won three Olympic medals and is the only American woman to capture downhill gold at the Olympic Winter Games. She is also second on the all-time list internationally with a career total of 82 World Cup victories. The class of 2022 will be inducted during a June 24th ceremony in Colorado Springs. They say life is 10% of what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. How do you respond when hardship comes your way? Here's Gina Marie who brings us Strong Mind and Body. Tribulation, hardship, crisis. What is your reaction to these words? Do they make you feel a little anxious? Yes? Well, you're not alone. But let's start to look at difficulty in a new light. Instead of our fight or fright response, let's look at hardships as gifts. Difficulties and hardships come in all shapes and sizes. Each one of them functions as a test and a lesson for us. How we see our difficulties determines the outcome and the choice is simple. Will we choose victimhood, blame others or sink into depression? Or will we choose to pause, reflect and consider our options? When it's tough, we have to dig deep face our fears and endure pain. Let's look at nature as an example. A storm builds, it explodes then disappears. The landscape gets cleaned and the old is destroyed. Whatever the obstacle, if we let it go, doesn't that lead to personal growth? Remember our last tribulation? Hasn't it lost its sting? The Chinese have a saying, eating bitterness is good fortune. They understood that from suffering, wisdom and growth emerge. Turbulence is a great equalizer and no one escapes it. The Stoics of ancient Greece and Rome also knew about the inevitability of hardship. Enduring hardship leads to inner peace and its companion, happiness. 
By accepting hardship, we recognize that life is full of contrast. This brings perspective, gratitude, and a sense of serenity. A piece of pottery starts life as a blob of clay. It was shaped and fired in the kiln. Only then did it become useful and an object of beauty. A gem cannot be polished without friction, nor a man perfected without trials. Welcome the turbulence. Strength, resilience, and wisdom will be yours. An Iditarod sled dog who's been missing for nearly three months has been found safe. This is Leon, who's been reunited with his owner. He got out of his coat and collar and ran off from a checkpoint in the Alaskan race in mid-March. He was recently seen 150 miles away in the Alaskan town of McGrath. A community member was able to catch him. His owner, musher Sebastian Dos Santos Borges, lives in France. He flew to Anchorage this week after getting updates on the search. They were reunited with a kiss in McGrath. Leon needs to be checked out by a veterinarian and get a health certificate before he can fly home to France. Race officials are looking at ways to keep dogs from getting lost in the future. That could include GPS trackers on collars. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City. Thank you.